You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. The number of coronavirus infections is rising again as the Delta variant becomes more dominant in the United States. The World Health Organization is advising fully vaccinated people to wear masks indoors and socially distance from others. But the CDC is leaving it up to states to set that guidance. In this episode, medical experts join Washington Post Live to discuss the latest on the pandemic, from vaccines to variants. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, a health policy reporter here at The Washington Post and author of the Health 202 newsletter. And today we're going to be discussing the latest on the coronavirus pandemic. My guests are Dr. Ashish Jha, Dean of the School of Public Health at Brown University, and Dr. Celine Gounder, Clinical Assistant Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at New York University and the CEO of Just Human Productions. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. So let's start off talking about uh, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And I know that they have applied to the FDA for full approval. So far, everyone has received them under emergency use authorization. Um, Dr. Jha is, I know it was just eight weeks ago that that we saw these applications. Um, do you think that we should, would you like to see these fully licensed sooner rather than later? And if, if they're not licensed, fully licensed, is that hindering the vaccination effort? Yeah, so I think it's time for the FDA to fully license these vaccines. So why do I think that? I think the this should be driven by data. There's no timeline here per se, but the data is pretty overwhelming. You know, we have vaccinated hundreds of millions of people around the world. Uh, we have very, very good data on safety, very, very good data on efficacy. Uh, there's more than enough data for FDA to, to offer full licensing. Uh, they usually license for a lot less. And then the big question is, well, why does it really matter? And here's why it matters. For a lot of individuals, not everybody, but for some chunk, uh, the fact that it's under emergency use authorization, uh, I think gives them pause about getting vaccinated. And I think it'll help those people. But even more importantly, there are a lot of companies that right now are waiting for that full licensing before they make a decision to mandate vaccinations for bringing people back into workplaces safely. And for those reasons, uh, I think the FDA should move forward, assuming that they agree on the data and the evidence and go ahead and license these things. Well, and your mention of employers leads me to my next question, this one for Dr. Gounder. Uh, if we do see this full licensure, do you think employers should be mandating vaccines for workers as they return to offices? I think you are going to see more and more employers do so, particularly as they understand that it does result in reduced loss, uh, loss of uh, days at work, uh, reducing lost productivity from illness. Uh, you also have the question of liability, for example, in healthcare systems. If you have a doctor or nurse who is infected with COVID or SARS-CoV-2 and transmits that infection to a patient, uh, could the hospital find itself liable, for example? Um, and I think other industries like the travel, hospitality, uh, restaurants, bars, you have some proportion of their customers who will simply feel more comfortable seeking out their services if they feel that that setting is safe because people there are vaccinated. Now, that said, I don't think this is going to apply universally across the country. I think it is going to depend on the local um, social, cultural politics of the area. Um, so, for example, you know, the cruise industry really tried to push for uh, mandating vaccination of, of staff as well as uh, their customers and have stepped back 
because of political pushback in Florida. So I think it's going to depend on the um, specific climate, um, both in terms of what employers themselves believe, what their workers are willing to abide by, and, and what customers have to say about it. Dr. Zha, I want to talk to ask you about uh, teens and vaccines. And we know the vaccines are authorized by for children down to age 12. Um, but there's been a lot of discussion over teens and children and getting the vaccines. Some experts have expressed concern that the risks of COVID-19 to teens and kids have been overblown. In the U.S., fewer than 450 kids under 18 have died from the virus. And this is comparable, as you know, to some flu seasons. Why is there such a push to get teens vaccinated? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, one of the ways in which misinformation has been spread in this pandemic is by talking about how teens are at lower risk than elderly people. Well, that's, of course, true. That's, by the way, true for everything. Uh, young people just are healthier and have lower risks than older people. That's really, to me, not the interesting question. The question is, uh, what are the risks compared to alternatives? And so right now we have had, as you said, several hundred kids die. Lots of kids have gotten sick, thankfully less often than older people. But then if you flip it and say, well, what are the risks of a vaccine that prevents these infections? Thankfully, we have not seen anybody die of vaccinations. We've seen a few hundred kids have uh, heart inflammation, myocarditis. Uh, most of them have been mild and have recovered on their own. So from a risk benefit point of view, to me, this is a no brainer. I have two teenage daughters. Both of them were excited to get vaccinated. I obviously uh, encouraged them to do so. Uh, but in my mind, this was not a close call. I think kids 12 and over, and, and eventually when we have data on kids under 12, them too. But right now, certainly 12 and over should get vaccinated. It's good for them. It protects their community. Uh, and given that the virus will become endemic, at some point, everybody's going to encounter the virus either as a vaccinated or an unvaccinated person. I'd much rather encounter the virus as a vaccinated person. Dr. Gounder, I want to ask you about kids under 12. And we know that there are clinical trials ongoing to try to get the vaccines authorized for this group. Um, this group, compared to teens, actually has an even lower risk of dying from COVID-19. 159 kids under 12 have died from the virus. Um, how do you think, you know, there's been, there's been a lot of debate about Given those risks, do we give, va give vaccines to younger kids, knowing that in other countries there are adults and older people who don't yet have access to the vaccines? How do you think about that? So just briefly, actually, going back to the previous question, um, your listeners, viewers may be interested in reading an op-ed I published with Dr. Jeremy Faust and uh, Katie Dickerson Myers in the New York Times, um, your, your competitor, I suppose, on uh, July 4th, which addresses specifically this question of the risks of vaccinating versus the risks of getting COVID among younger people, so including teens and children. And so we lay out the calculations there so you can see if we allow the virus to spread across the country, if everybody you know, under 18 eventually gets infected, how many hospitalizations do you get from that? And how many hospitalizations do you get if everybody gets vaccinated? And that's really the choice here is, do you get infected or do you get vaccinated? As, as Dr. Jha said, 
we are looking at an infection that is likely to become endemic, which means that all of us will encounter it. The real question is, do we encounter it as a vaccinated person or as an unvaccinated person? So those calculations are pretty clear. Your rate of hospitalizations are much, much lower if we really try to get all those younger people vaccinated. Now, as to your question about even younger, the under 12, you know, again, there's, this is not a risk-free infection. And so the risk of the infection remains higher than the risk of vaccination. Uh, so I think that's, you know, point, point number one. We are also are seeing long COVID. We have this syndrome, MISC, which is um, uh, when COVID affects multiple organ systems in, in uh, pediatric patients. Uh, we, we simply do not know what are the really long-term effects of SARS-CoV-2 infection in children under 12. In contrast, what we do know with vaccines, and this goes back over 250 years with our experience with vaccines going back to the very first vaccine, smallpox, we know that if somebody's going to have a side effect from vaccination, that happens within the first two months after vaccination. So we know that two months is actually quite robust follow-up. That is not the same as with an infection. With an infection, you could have long-term consequences much, much farther out, and we're still learning what they are, and they clearly are significant even in the under-12 population. So when you're talking about the sort of debate between give the vaccine to kids in the U.S. under 12 versus give those doses to older adults overseas, you would sort of be in that first camp of try to vaccinate, trying to vaccinate the kids. Would that be fair to say? That's really a false choice, because if you look at how many kids we have here in the United States, I mean, you're talking about 20 million or so additional people to vaccinate. Um, that's not going to vaccinate the world. In order to increase uh, access to vaccines across the world, we really need to ramp up manufacturing dramatically. We need to have self-sufficiency in vaccine manufacturing as well as in terms of vaccine supply chains. Uh, we've seen how this has created vulnerabilities. You, you have the Serum Institute in India that really was supposed to be producing much of the vaccine for the world, and then India was hit with its own surge. That led to um, bottlenecks in terms of barring exports of vaccine elsewhere. We use the Defense Production Act in this country to hold on to raw materials for vaccine production here. So you have the Serum Institute that can't get raw materials and then can't export what they produce. You know, that really speaks to some of the, the issues we have in the global manufacturing um, uh, system right now. And so that's really, I think, a key lesson is that that needs to change. We need to be building up capacity elsewhere. Uh, the Africa CDC, for example, is, is working on this for the African continent. And I think that really needs to be happening around the world. I have an audience question I'd like to direct to Dr. Ja, and it's from Sona Ramesh from Washington, D.C. Uh, and this person writes, do you support making the COVID vaccine a routine childhood immunization that is mandatory for school enrollment? What do you think, Dr. Jha? Yeah, so first of all, uh, I still want to see the data on kids under 12. So I, I really do. I think the data will come in showing that it's safe and effective. But my thinking that it shouldn't be the standard, we should actually see the data. But let's say the data for kids under 12 come in as strong as they have for 12 and to 17 year olds. Uh, then, yeah, uh, I think. As Dr. Gander said, you know, look, we're going to have millions and millions of kids across the U.S. who will have been vaccinated, will have really good experience on how safe and effective these are. If all of that looks good, then I think we should make it mandatory as part of attending school. We do this for all sorts of other uh, vaccines, all sorts of other childhood illnesses. No reason not to do it for COVID. 
And Dr. Gounder, I want to direct another audience question to you. This one's from Nancy Keener, also from Washington, D.C. Uh, and she writes, how effective are the current vaccines against the Delta variant? So we are seeing more breakthrough infections with the Delta variant with all of the vaccines that are authorized here in the U.S. However, I think what's really important is to remember why do we vaccinate? We don't vaccinate for the common cold. We don't vaccinate to prevent the sniffles or a cough. We vaccinate to prevent from uh, people from ending up in the hospital. We vaccinate to prevent deaths. And from that perspective, the vaccines do appear to remain robust even against the Delta variant. What I would say is if you have not been vaccinated, really this is the time, uh, probably sometime in July, the Delta variant will become the dominant variant here in the United States. And so if you get infected this summer or this fall, chances are it will be the Delta variant. Uh, you know, and, and so that is very concerning. You still have time to get vaccinated if you haven't been and the vaccines do work. Dr. Zha, I want to sort of gauge your level of concern about the Delta variant, um, because, of course, as we know, it's very transmissible. Um, on the flip side, you know, in the U.S., we actually have much higher levels of vaccination than most other countries. Um, and there, it's also, as, as Dr. Gounder noted, uh, the vaccines seem to be still very effective for preventing hospitalization and death. So how concerned should Americans be about the Delta variant? Yeah, you know, I've grown somewhat concerned about this, and, and let me explain why. Um, there are two countries that are more vaccinated than we are, the UK, a little bit more than us, and Israel, which is a lot more vaccinated, or just a higher proportion of the population is vaccinated. And they're both seeing pretty significant surges in infections uh, as a result of the Delta variant. UK started before Israel did, and the UK is now seeing an increase in hospitalizations as well. But let's be clear, let me reiterate a point Dr. Gounder made, which I completely agree with, which is the vaccines work exceedingly well. The spread is happening almost exclusively in unvaccinated individuals uh, with some breakthrough uh, infections spilling over into vaccinated people. So I think given that we have large chunks of the country, states with very, very low vaccination rates, uh, I'm pretty concerned about those places. I live in Massachusetts. Uh, which has a very high level of vaccination. I'm not so worried about my local community. I think this is going to be community to community, but I think communities with low vaccination rates absolutely should be concerned about what is going to happen in the weeks ahead uh, as Delta variant becomes pretty much the only variant that is going to be driving almost all the infections uh, across the U.S. I guess, but here's my follow-up question. We haven't seen deaths and hospitalizations go up in the U.S. yet. Is it too early to tell whether the Delta variant will result in that, or is that a good sign? How do you read those data at this moment, Dr. Shaw? Yeah, two things. First of all, we're not going to see the same link between cases and deaths that we've seen in, uh, before vaccinations because our vaccination rates, thankfully, among older people, the high-risk people, are, is just really phenomenal. Most high-risk people have been fully vaccinated. And so those people are going to be protected. We're going to see a lot more infections on young people. I do believe that we're going to see increases in hospitalizations. Actually, it's not even just believe. We're seeing it. We're seeing it in communities with big outbreaks now. Uh, Southwest Missouri, for instance, but other places. I think we'll see it in those places, but the but the increase in hospitalizations and the increase in deaths, which are coming in the next few weeks, are going to be much lower, thankfully, than what we saw in the previous surges, because the high-risk people are largely vaccinated. 
Uh, Dr. Gounder, uh, I want to ask you about mask recommendations. Uh, we now have a, a difference in recommendations between the World Health Organization and the CDC. Uh, the WHO is urging, urging vaccinated people to still wear masks indoors and socially distance. CDC, as we know, has really lightened requirements for vaccinated people. Um, how should we proceed with all of this, Dr. Gounder? So the CDC is making recommendations for the U.S. context, where fortunately we have really great access to vaccines. I mean, really just about anybody who wants to get vaccinated in this country can get vaccinated. There do remain certain barriers like getting uh, paid time off work, which by the way, the Biden administration is providing uh, 100% uh, tax credit to businesses, medium and, and small businesses that provide paid time off to their employees to get vaccinated. So, you know, the, these kinds of barriers are being addressed even when they exist. Um, we are a very different context from a country like South Africa that is struggling, one, with its own variant, uh, the beta variant, and then also struggling to get access to vaccines. Many countries around the world are looking at having to wait years before they can get their populations vaccinated. So those are very different contexts. I think the other thing to think about is, are you setting a floor, you know, a low threshold or a high threshold um, for, for masking? Are, are you delegating that responsibility to the individual to assess what is the risk in their community and then to make the decision, perhaps in the face of peer pressure not to wear a mask to do so? You know, I think these are, again, very different contexts. Uh, the, the World Health Organization is making recommendations for the world where there is a very real scarcity of access to vaccination as the Delta is a variant is spreading. And, and remember, the rest of the world doesn't have the ventilators and ICUs and access to very high level of healthcare that we have in this country. So the recommendations are really um, based on the local context. And, and I would add, there's really another third layer of recommendation that I think we keep forgetting and frankly has been under empowered, which is the state and local health departments which really do have a role to play in saying, okay, this is what the CDC says for the nation in our particular context. Um, you know, I think what we should be saying in Missouri where the Delta variant is driving a surge is gonna be different from what we say in some place like Massachusetts. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, right now what you're seeing across the country are efforts to restrict local public health powers, uh, which have frankly been weak uh, local public health departments that have been underempowered, underfunded uh, for a long time. But that's really where you could be having more nuance and gradation based on local circumstances. Uh, Dr. Ja, when we think about um, immunocompromised people like transplant recipients, people with some blood cancers, uh, certain autoimmune disorders, uh, we're seeing that the vaccines may not be as effective in these people. What are your recommendations for how these folks can be protected from the virus? Yeah, it's a really good question because we often forget that vaccines don't work for everybody, um, particularly if you're immunocompromised, the vaccine's not going to work as effectively. And for some people, it barely works at all. Uh, first and foremost, I can't believe I have to say this, but I'm going to say this. Every health system in America should mandate vaccines for its employees. You just cannot be an organization that cares, uh, that purports to take care of people who are immunocompromised, and you're going to subject them to potentially employees who are uh, unvaccinated and potentially could kill them if they spread the virus. So that's number one. We've seen that kind of leadership from some health systems. A lot of other health systems are, I think, doing a lot of navel gazing right now, hoping that 
Uh, they don't have to make hard decisions to take care of their patients. They do. It's a leadership moment. That's going to be really, really important. Second is I do think the best way to protect immunocompromised people is the way the best way to protect unvaccinated kids, the best way to protect anybody who doesn't get the benefit, which is to have as many people around them vaccinated. Communities with high vaccination rates are going to have very little virus spreading. That's going to protect immunocompromised people. Obviously, if you're really immunocompromised and the vaccine's not working for you, you're going to have to take some extra precautions to yourself. Wearing a mask indoors is probably a good idea, even if low, vaccine, low infection rates in the community. But there's a lot that we in the community can be doing to help our uh, fellow you know, uh, members of our society who are immunocompromised. And uh, Dr. Jha, I also want to ask you about the Biden administration's response. Um, clearly, they've been successful in many, many ways. And we're at a point right now where we didn't even dream of six months ago. Um, but do you have any criticisms of the approach or critiques or recommendations for things that they could have done better, could have done differently to perhaps re have reached President Biden's 70% infamous 70% goal that he almost got to but didn't quite reach by July 4th? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I will tell you, I've been pretty, um, oh, pretty clear that I think some of their global stuff has not been as aggressive as it needs to be, and I, I think they should be doing a lot more. Uh, at some point, the best way to help Americans is by getting the world vaccinated, and I think we are at that point. On the domestic side itself, I mean, I think getting 67% of American adults vaccinated uh, between January and you know July 4th is an extraordinary accomplishment. It really is the federal government uh, at its best. Uh, and I, I think largely, you know, I, again, I, I don't know that I have much in the way of, uh, of criticism. I liked the 70% goal. I said the day the president made that goal, I said it is his most ambitious agenda yet. Uh, I think they could be doing more on working with social media companies, particularly Facebook, that spreads almost all of the misinformation that is dissuading people from getting vaccinated. So I think there's some more work that could be done there, more work with the communities and community-based organizations. I think the Biden administration knows a lot of this and probably should and could be doing more. But overall, on, a mess, on American domestic vaccination, they've been pretty extraordinary. Let's turn to these reports of myocarditis. And uh, as you know, the CDC advisory panel met a couple of weeks ago to consider these reports of myocarditis after receiving the mRNA vaccines, primarily these uh, cases happening to younger men. Um, and, you know, I've spoken to a number of uh, public health experts who have suggested that perhaps we should uh, delay the second dose um, or not administer the second dose to folks who had previously had uh, the virus um, because most of these cases have occurred after receiving the second dose. Dr. Gounder, what do you think about that? And do you think the CDC made the right decision to continue with the current recommendations of getting both doses for this category of people? Sure, and um, I'll, I'll answer that in just a moment. I do want to clarify one point about immunosuppressed persons. I think some people get confused about that and think it means they cannot get vaccinated. If you have an immunosuppressive condition, I would still get vaccinated. We cannot, with reliability, predict who will or will not respond to the vaccines. I have a patient, for example, who's had a solid organ transplant, who was vaccinated with an mRNA vaccine, who responded. So we don't always know, and that still remains an important line of defense against the infection, in addition to everything Dr. Jha mentioned. Now, with respect to myocarditis and the risk of that among young men, uh, say, you know, an 18-year-old boy uh, or man, um, 
that that argument presumes that that person will not be exposed to to COVID, to SARS-CoV-2 infection anytime soon. Um, and we know that actually, as you get older, your risk of having the complications of severe COVID, including myocarditis, congestive heart failure, and so on, uh, increases the older you get. Um, we also know that the, in terms of long-term uh, sequelae, so um, long-term heart failure, not just myocarditis, you're far more likely to get that with COVID than you are with the mild myocarditis uh, that you get from um, vaccination. So I think what's unfortunate about that argument is that it's, it simply assumes that nothing's gonna happen. There's gonna be no exposure until this person magically turns, I don't know, 30 or 40. And that's simply not the reality. There's also been a bit of a debate about why we're not considering natural immunity in who we're recommending to get the virus. I know in some countries they are considering natural immunity and saying if you've recently had the virus, you should wait a little bit of time to get the, the vaccine. And I want to share a personal story just to illustrate some of the why people are asking some of these questions. Um, I recently actually had a relative die four days after receiving the first dose of the Moderna vaccine, uh, and he had been diagnosed with myocarditis. He was a 40-year-old man. Um, I know this, of course, doesn't prove causation, and it could have been caused by a number of reasons. They're still looking into that. Um, but this does cause you know, his family members to ask questions. Um, this man had previously had uh, COVID-19 two months earlier. Um, so they're asking, you know, maybe he didn't need the vaccine. Why did he get, you know, why was he recommended to get the vaccine? Dr. Ja, could you respond to that sort of question about natural immunity and, and, and sort of why we're not taking that into consideration currently? Well, we should be digging into consideration. I mean, when I think about population level immunity and I think about where different communities are, different states are, I always sort of include natural infection as a as a measure. I, I, I This has been a funny topic because in some ways it's gotten like mass and like vaccines has gotten a little bit politicized and unfortunately. So here's how I think about natural infection and natural immunity. Uh, it's real. You get real immunity from having been previously infected. The questions in front of us are, do we think it's as good as vaccine-induced immunity? And do we think it's as durable? And most of the evidence right now suggests that vaccine-induced immunity is better. It's more durable and it's probably broader and you get better protection if you got vaccinated versus, and, and by the way, this is gonna seem counterintuitive to a lot of people who are gonna be like, wait a second, you think natural infection is gonna give you better immunity? There are instances where that's not the case and this I think is one of them. You know, in terms of whether, vac uh, sorry, whether previously infected people should get vaccinated, I think they should. Uh, the CDC has in the past at least recommended that you wait three months, um, which has been my uh, advice as well. Certainly in the first three months after you recover, you're going to have very good level of protection. Uh, but at some point you should down the road. And there's a whole debate of whether you should get one or two doses. Uh, I think there's a reasonable argument to be made about getting one dose. But I do think that people who've been previously infected should get immunized because uh, I think they're going to have better, broader, more durable immunity if they do. And Dr. Jacques, could you explain to us sort of the reasoning behind why, if you had recently had COVID-19, you might have a, neg a more negative reaction to the vaccine? How might that work? Yeah, so it's actually interesting. We haven't, I'm not aware of much data that uh, you're going to have uh, a lot more untoward effects from the vaccine. But I think for me, the reason I've been recommending 90 days is because all the evidence that's out there says that you have a very high degree of protection from reinfection in those first 90 days. We do think 
uh, that, you know, obviously some people when they've been previously infected and then they get their first shot of the vaccine will often have the kind of immunologic response that you see with a second dose because your body has seen the, that spike protein before uh, and it's responding. So there may be some untoward effect of like, of essentially an immune system that's still quite revved up from the infection uh, responding aggressively to that uh, first dose of the vaccine. I, I don't think we know all that well yet, uh, but I think it's perfectly reasonable, in fact, prudent to just wait a little bit of time after recovering from an infection, uh, 90 days uh, before getting that first shot. Yeah, and if I can just jump in on that, I mean, we saw this last summer. I was taking care of patients at Bellevue where, remember, remember in New York, we had our surge in March and April. In August, almost all the patients I was seeing with COVID um, were patients who are coming in now with either heart failure or kidney failure a couple months later. So, you know, those long COVID sequelae. And so what you're describing may in fact be related to the initial infection with COVID. And I think it's another reason to delay vaccination a little bit uh, because it helps us tease out what are really um, the consequences of the original infection as opposed to side effects from vaccination. Uh, the other thing I would point out, you know, I think there's a great case study of why vaccination uh, after infection remains important. And that's the city of Manaus in Brazil, where about 75% of the population was infected with COVID. And yet, you know, the virus mutates, um, becomes more infectious or immune uh, evading, uh, as happened with the Brazilian variant, the, uh, what we're now seeing with the Delta variant that emerged in, the, in, in India. Um, and so, Brazil experienced another surge with um, the arrival of new variants. And so this is where the vaccine really is better. It better protects against the variants because you get higher, uh, more reliably higher levels of neutralizing antibodies to protect you against those variant infections. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, so we'll have to leave things there. But this was a great conversation. Dr. Ja and Dr. Gounder, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, please come back and join Washington Post Live tomorrow at 10 a.m. when my colleague Francis Sellers will interview Utah Governor Spencer Cox. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, and thanks so much for watching. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.